midst of World War II, C.S. Lewis gave four radio broadcasts over the BBC, which would later be compiled into a book entitled Mere Christianity. This book inspired my journey to know why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. It is just past midnight, and I just watched the Atlanta Braves clinch the National League Championship. They are going to the World Series, baby. Let's go, Braves. So I am pumped. I've been, I've been, uh, you know, eating cookies and and all kinds of junk food and staying up late watching the ball game. So I'm ready to go. Let, <laughs> let's let's record a podcast episode because I there's no way I could go to sleep right now. I got to wind down a little bit. So uh, let me just share a Bears biscuit with you here. This is a little treat for my listeners. It, you know, if, if you're not watching baseball, you got to pull for the Braves in the World Series. Also, find a way to listen to the Braves radio broadcast. So what I do is I, you know, whatever station the game is on, I turn on the game. But then on my phone, I subscribe to MLB TV and I can listen to the Braves radio broadcast. Those guys are great. They they are really good baseball guys. You'll learn about baseball and they're just funny. And, and I just, oh, I'm so pumped. All right. So now now let's talk about the trinity all right let's bring it in i am i am so pumped right now all right so the last several weeks i have been discussing the trinity and this will be the last one on the trinity now you may be asking bear why are you making so why are you making christianity so complicated all right if you've listened to the last few episodes we've talked a lot about the doctrine of the trinity and different things there and so you may, that's a fair question. You know, why does all this really matter? Why does it have to be so complicated? And it, it's not, but it, it, I, I just love it. I think it's fun to contemplate these, um, these sort of big ideas about God. I mean, God gave us a mind and he gave us the Bible. And so I, I view it as an act of worship to contemplate the nature of God. And even though I know I'm not going to fully understand God. The more I I think about God and ponder on the greatness of God and, and his different attributes, it, it strengthens my life in so many different ways and, and how I live life. So I do view it as an act of worship to contemplate the deeper things of God. Anyway, that's I, I love the Trinity. I love thinking about stuff like this. So uh, this will and and this is my podcast, so I can do what I want. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's jump right in. There are lots of objections to the Trinity. I mean, a lot of people have problems with Christianity, and so the the Trinity is one of those doctrines that a lot of people of a will attack. And so I'm going to cover some of those basic objections, and hopefully also in you know as you see how we you know, how I've sort of dealt with these in my own mind as I've had to consider these for myself, you know, there's a pretty common theme in how we handle these. So you can almost like lump them into categories. So when you, if you hear a new objection, it's not really new. You're just sort of, okay, here's the direction I go with that. And and here's the answer, right? So anyway, I hope you enjoy this episode. Now, before we get started, because today's going to be sort of like a rapid fire episode I'm just going to give an objection and then my response. Before we get started, let's jump right into a special segment of the show called A Bear in the Woods. This is inspired by a recent conversation I had with some friends. So here it is. Bear, when am I required to change the toilet paper roll? 
Now, here's an interesting statistic for you. Did you know that 50% of married people do not know how to change the toilet paper roll? I've recently invested in a toilet paper roll changing service. It's $15 a month and they come every other day and check your bathrooms to see if the toilet paper needs to be changed. Their technicians are qualified, licensed, and insured. Each technician has passed rigorous standards in which they must change toilet paper on various toilet paper holder models. And this is all done while blindfolded. So they are the best of the best. So if you struggle to change the toilet paper, give them a call. It's 1-800-LAZY-ROLL with one L. 1-800-LAZY-ROLL or that's 1-800-529-9765. Also, my listeners get 50% off the first month with the keyword BEAR. Now, if you're a do-it-yourselfer, I think the standard requirement for changing the toilet paper is when there is not enough paper left for a normal wipe. If it's down to the square that's glued to the cardboard, it's time to change it. Nobody can use that little square. I mean, maybe to blow your nose, that's about it. Uh, also, I can't really think of a situation where simply setting the new roll on top of the cardboard roller is ever sufficient. Just take another three seconds to fully change it out, okay? Now, I hope that helps you out some, but that's just my opinion, and this has been a bear in the woods. Okay, some objections to the Trinity. Here's the first one. Why is the Trinity not found in the Old Testament? Well, the Trinity is not fully revealed in the Old Testament. That is true. The full revelation of the Trinity takes place when the Son became flesh and lived on earth. That's the, the life of Jesus. And when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, that's when the Trinity was fully revealed. Now, right after that is when the New Testament began being written, okay? So the, the full revelation of the Trinity actually occurs between the Old and the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament does not speak specifically about the Trinity, but it does not rule it out. The Shema is one of the you know, main verses that people will use against the Trinity from the Old Testament, and I've talked about it before. It's, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, that word one is echad in Hebrew. I don't speak Hebrew, but that's how I've heard other people say it. And so uh, anyway, this word one, it does not necessarily mean singleness. It, it just, it, it means one and it can mean one in unity. And so for instance, in Genesis, when it says the husband should take a wife and the two will become one flesh, that's the word that's used there. This word echad is also used to describe one cluster of grapes. And so it doesn't rule out that God could be a trinity. Now, in Isaiah 48, 16, we have sort of an allusion to the trinity. Now, it's important to know who the speaker is in this verse. The speaker describes themselves a few verses earlier. It says this, this is in Isaiah 48, 12 through 13. The speaker says this, I am the first and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. So th that's who's talking in this verse, and that can only be God, okay? Now, let's go to the actual verse that I wanted to bring up, Isaiah 48, 16. It says this, draw near to me, hear this, from the beginning I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there, and now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. So here we have the speaker who is obviously... God, just by the way that, that they describe themselves, the first and the last, their hand laid the foundation of the earth, the right hand spread out the heavens. That's who's talking. But yet it says, the Lord God has sent me 
and his spirit. And so there we have a, a the Lord God who sends, the one who is speaking, the one who has been sent, and also the spirit, all in the same verse, all in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus you know, ever lived. And so that's Isaiah 48, 16. Another verse is Zechariah 12, 10, and the speaker again is the Lord. And it says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So the the speaker is the Lord, but it says, when they look on me, then it sort of switches. The the language is, is a little bit different and it says, on him whom they have pierced. So, you know, I know it's not like, it doesn't just come out and say, the Trinity is one being and three person, but this at least could be sort of an allusion to the Trinity. Now, that why is the Trinity not specifically taught in the New Testament? That's a, another objection. Well, the New Testament, again, there's not this, you know, dissertation. There's not this passage we can go to where it just lays it out in like bullet points. However, in the New Testament, it's clear that there is only one God, yet the Father is described as God, the Son is described as God, and the Holy Spirit is described as God. So how do we how do we put these together? That's what Trinitarians are trying to do. They're trying to be faithful to all of the Bible. Then we can take the objections a step further. People will say, well, why did it take 300 years before Christianity had a somewhat unified doctrine of the Trinity? You know, so so Jesus lived and died and then rose again. Then you have the New Testament was written. But then in 325 AD, we have this big Council of Nicaea that I've talked about in previous episodes. That's what critics are referring to. They're saying, oh, it took 300 years for them to come up with some doctrine called the Trinity. Why should we believe it? Well, first off, the, the persecuted church can't just hold a big convention. So an important thing happened. Constantine the emperor became a Christian. And so this this allowed Christians to start meeting in public. I mean, before this, they were being persecuted big time. Uh, Nero, in the first century, he would capture Christians, dip them in tar, and light them on fire as candles for his garden parties. I mean, you know, so, so you know, the church is not going to, like, put out a worldwide letter like, hey, we're all meeting together at, you know, at Nicaea or whatever. So it's just it's just not going to happen. And so a persecuted church can't just hold these big conventions. So it you know after Constantine became a Christian, then it gave them the freedom to meet and discuss these things. Also, you know, church councils do not uh, I'm not bound by what a church council says. And these church councils are not meeting together to sort of come up with doctrine. They are meeting together to look back at Scripture and to essentially summarize what Scripture is teaching, and also to, uh, the, in you know, a lot of times these councils, the result of the council would be some sort of creed that was written, and these creeds would would be carefully worded so as to rule out any sort of heresy, and so the big heresy that was discussed in Nicaea was the heresy of Arianism, and this is where a, a a prominent teacher in the church, Arius, was teaching that Jesus was not God eternally, that Jesus was the first created being of God. And so, you know, that's that's what these councils are meeting for. They're meeting to discuss what is found in the Bible. So I'm not bound 
by any council. None of these church councils have any authority, you know, as far as my uh, Christian life. They have no authority over me. The, the church doesn't have any authority. The Pope doesn't have any authority. You know, I am, the Bible is what is my authority. Now, if I investigate the Bible and, I, and their creed aligns with what I believe the Bible is teaching, then so be it. You know, I'll, I'll quote their creed or whatever, but it, it doesn't have any authority over me. Now, that does differ. Um, there, there is some differences there. I'm what you would consider a Protestant but Catholics, they do have a different view of the authority that the church has. And so we'll talk a lot about Catholicism in, in future episodes. The next objection, if Jesus is eternal, why is he called the firstborn of creation? So here's the verse that, that critics are talking about, Colossians 1.15. It says this, he, it's talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, that word firstborn in the Greek, because that's what the New Testament was written in originally, the Greek word there is prototokos. And yes, it can mean the oldest child, but it can also mean someone of like a preeminent rank, like a chief rank. And so in that culture, the firstborn inherited basically all that the father had, and the firstborn was, was viewed as the authority leader over the father's possessions. And so it... it almost became a way to refer to someone who was in authority. And so let me give you an example. This is from the Old Testament, and it's talking about David. This is King David, David and Goliath, same David, okay? In Psalm eighty-nine twenty-seven, God says, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, David was the youngest in his family. He had several older brothers, so he's not the firstborn there. Also, David is not the first king of Israel. Saul was the first king of Israel. And so, you know, in no way is he the firstborn. But God says, I will make him the firstborn. I will make him the prototokos and the highest of the kings of the earth. And so this is not, this does not have to mean literal firstborn. It, it, it's more of an authority or a rank. And so, you know, this, when we go back to this Colossians 1.15 passage, how should firstborn be interpreted there? Well, I think if you keep reading and see what the following verses say, it makes it very clear this is not talking about the literal firstborn of God, okay? Because it says this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn or the prototokos of all creation. Here we go. For by him, all things were created. That puts Jesus as creator and not as something that was created, because he created all things. So, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, there well, there we go. We have that word firstborn again, the firstborn from the dead. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And so if Jesus was the firstborn from the dead, he, he couldn't literally be the first person to be raised from the dead because Lazarus was raised. And so he is the firstborn in some other sense. And so it, it, it is his, his chief rank because it's because of Jesus' resurrection that we all have hope of a resurrection. 
And just to solidify this a little more, in John 1, verse 3, it says, talking about Jesus, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So, you know, we have two verses here that are clearly putting Jesus as creator and not as something that was created. The next objection is, did Jesus have, people will say this, they'll say, did Jesus have to sleep and eat and, you know, I would, as a Christian, I would say, well, yeah, that's what the Gospels tell us. And they'll say, well, does God have to sleep? And of course, God doesn't have to sleep. And they'll say, therefore, Jesus can't be God. Well, I've got to refer you back to last week's episode on the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union states that Jesus has a divine, eternal nature. Jesus has always been God. But as John 1.14 tells us, Jesus became flesh. He took on flesh. So the hypostatic union is that Jesus, the the second person of the Trinity, has a divine nature, but also chose to take on a human nature. And so therefore, the human nature gets tired and hungry and all of those things. Now, let's go a little further with that to this verse here, Mark 13, 32. Jesus is talking about the final judgment, and he says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So critics of the of the Trinity will say, okay, Jesus says he doesn't know, only the Father knows. How can God not know something? But again, Jesus, in his human nature, veiled his divine nature. And so James White, the author of The Forgotten Trinity, which is a book I've recommended several times, in debates on the Trinity, he often says, you know, when Jesus walked down the street, he just looked like a normal guy. He didn't glow, you know, that sort of thing. So he he, he set aside without uh, without giving up. He he didn't cease to be God, but he I get the the best word I've heard to describe it is he veiled it. He sort of covered his divinity. So Jesus, in his human nature, is just like another man. He doesn't know everything. And so that's, that is okay. That's not a contradiction of the Bible. It doesn't take away from the divinity of Jesus. Another point they'll make, they'll say, can God die? And of course, the answer is no, God can't die. They'll say, well, did Jesus die on the cross? Therefore, Jesus can't be God. And again, it's the hypostatic union, the, the human nature of Jesus. Jesus physically died on the cross. He did not cease to be God. And so it is just a, a misunderstanding. All these objections are just misunderstandings of what Trinitarians actually believe. Here's another objection. If Jesus is God, why does he pray to the Father? Why should God have to pray to anything? He's, he's God, right? So Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have lived. It is his perfect life in which the commandments were perfectly obeyed. And yes, I am meaning to say perfect over and over again on purpose because it is Jesus's perfection which makes him the perfect sacrifice for our sin, because that's the only sacrifice that is sufficient, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. See episode four for more details on that. Or listen, I always say see, but listen to episode four. So Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. Jesus lived the life that we should live. And so he gives you know, he's perfectly obedient to the Father. He submits to the Father. This, again, this does not take away from his divinity. Uh, James White often asks this question in debates when this comes up. He says, if God became a man, would you would you expect that man to be an atheist? I mean, of course not. 
So Jesus humbled himself and took the form of a man and became obedient to the Father. That's Philippians 2. There is nothing about this which takes away the glory of the second person of the Trinity. Nothing about it at all. And so when Jesus prays to the Father, you, you, still, have, you still have the relationship of the Trinity that's, that's still happening there. It, it does not take away from Jesus' divinity. Here's the next objection. It references Mark 15, 34, and people will say, you know, if Jesus was God, if the Trinity really exists, why does Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me when he's hanging on the cross? And so, you know, what you got to realize here is Jesus is not just in agony on the cross and in despair, and then he just says this one sentence, and he just sort of comes up with it out of thin air. Jesus is quoting a very popular psalm. It's Psalm 22, and the psalms are the like the hymn book or the soundtrack for the Jewish people. So the, in Jewish culture, these would, have been the, these would be the songs that you would grow up singing as a child. So they're very familiar to the Jewish people. And Psalm 22 starts out that way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was written by David, but we have no evidence that any of this stuff in Psalm 22 ever happened to David. So it's it's called a messianic psalm, almost as if it's a prophecy that David is giving. Because in the psalm, if you just go read Psalm 22, just read it for yourself. It's it's 31 verses long, so I'm not going to read it on the podcast. But um, in Psalm 22, the the psalmist who is David, but he's it, he's the psalmist is mocked by those surrounding him, and they are casting lots for his garment. This happened to Jesus when he was on the cross says his hands and his feet are pierced. Of course, that happened to Jesus. That's how they, they nailed him to the cross. Um, the psalmist says, I can see my own bones. And so we have evidence from, from the crucifixion, from like a- ancient historians, that the whipping before the, cruci- the, before the crucifixion often ripped away most of the skin on the back. And you could see the rib cage and then sometimes even the internal organs the, the the people who were put on the cross were whipped so bad. And so we, you know, all of these things in Psalm 22, they, they point to the crucifixion. There's there's more, just read it for yourself. But by the end of the Psalm, so the Psalm starts out very bleak. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then by the end of the Psalm, it sort of grows in its positivity. And the last few verses of the Psalm are this. It's Psalm 22, verses 30 and 31. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. So the the psalmist, David, okay, but again, this is pointing to Jesus, realizes that the his prayers have been heard. The Lord hears him in his anguish, and also that what is happening to him will be told to children or people yet unborn. And so that we don't really have any indication this ever happened to David, but the crucifixion of Jesus, I mean, that that's why I have this podcast right now, is because what happened to Jesus, his crucifixion and then his resurrection, has been proclaimed throughout the earth. And so this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This one sentence by Jesus, he is identifying himself as the one in that Psalm 22. This is not... Um, this is not taking away from the Trinity in any way. It, it doesn't uh, mean that at all. The last objection that I want to cover 
is what I sort of teased you with at the end of last episode. And so this story is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel. I'll use Mark's version. Um, uh, Those versions are very similar and sometimes just even word for word. But Mark is considered the earliest gospel by many New Testament scholars. So we'll, we'll go with Mark. And so here it is. It's Mark 10, starting in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, this is Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him. Now, in Luke's version, I think this man is called the rich young ruler. So this is a very popular story in the Gospels, It's the story of the rich young ruler. So uh, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, and this is the part that, that critics of the Trinity will go to, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. When I was researching the Trinity and I came across this verse, I read it uh, several times. Uh, I was troubled by this. This is this is one of those objections that at first I was like, oh man, that why would Jesus say that? That just doesn't seem to align with, with uh, what I was uh, researching about the Trinity. And so this one troubled me. And so I had to dig a little bit and and figure out what Jesus... I just had to read the story several times, and then it became a lot more clear to me what was going on here. Also, this really encouraged me too. I, I wasn't even looking for this, but I was watching a YouTube video. I, I told you I like watching debates. And this was one of a pastor who was basically like on the streets just talking to different people and, and um, discussing Christianity with them. And I think he was talking to a Muslim... And the, the Muslim brought up this verse and was basically saying the Trinity doesn't exist and Jesus is not God because Jesus said, you know, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And the preacher asked him, he said, well, was Jesus good? And the, the guy, you could tell the, the guy already knew what was going to happen. So he sort of thinks, and he's like, well, yeah. <laughs> so so the preacher was like, well, then Jesus is God. And he's kind of just left it hanging there. And and uh, I, I just thought that was really clever. That was a really, uh, a really good way of kind of disarming this argument. So, you know, just that's that's easy enough. That's simple enough. But let's look at it a little deeper. Now, the Ten Commandments, because Jesus is, is about to talk about the commandments with this rich young ruler. The Ten Commandments can be broken up into two basic categories. The first four are about God and man, and then the rest of them are about like like man-to-man, human-to-human relationships. And so it can be summarized in this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are The Ten Commandments can be basically simplified into those two. So Jesus, when he talks to the man, he jumps right into, he says, you know the commandments, do not kill, do not commit adultery you know, those sorts of things. And and the man says, well, I have kept all those perfectly since my youth. So he's basically saying, yep, check, I got those, okay? And so Jesus then says, okay, well, you lack one thing for eternal life. You lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. And so this is where the, this is where the man was troubled. And he, so he walks away from Jesus and, disheartened. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and says, you know, how difficult is it for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of heaven? And then he, you know, some, you've, you may have heard this before. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And then the disciples asked Jesus, well, then who, I mean, who can be saved? If this guy can't, you know, if this guy doesn't make it, then who in the world can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So let's go back and, and look at a few details here. Notice that Jesus jumps. He, he sort of ignores, for the first part, the, the first commandment, the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The first thing he asked the guy about is, how are you treating your neighbor, basically? He says, you know the commandments. Don't kill, don't commit adultery, those types of things. And the man says, yep, I've done those. And so in Jesus' suggestion to him, Jesus is a good teacher, and he will use questions and little suggestions to reveal your your true heart. And so he says, okay, you said you've done all that, you know, like that's simple for you. So just go sell all you have, all your wealth, and give it to the poor. No big deal. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so he's he's revealing this man's true heart. He This guy thinks that he's keeping the law perfectly, but he's nowhere close to it. And listen, go listen to episode three of this podcast if you haven't already. To and that's where I discuss, you know, how we it basically is impossible for us to keep the law of God. That's why we need a savior. And so Jesus is sort of pricking at him here and and letting him know, letting him realize for himself he cannot keep the law of God perfectly. And then what does Jesus say? So after he's handled the love your neighbor part, shouldn't Jesus say, "So go sell all you have, give it to the poor." And then make sure that you're worshiping the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Make sure you're doing that. But instead, what does Jesus say? He says, go sell all you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. He, he almost puts himself in the place of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So this here does not, Jesus saying, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He's not, Jesus is not denying to be God. He is asking a question to get this man thinking about who he's dealing with, and then also his suggestion about go selling all he has and giving it to the poor, that that's revealing this man's true heart. He's he's basically telling this guy, you can't make it. You can't get eternal life on your own. You need a savior. And he's he's trying to bring this guy to humility. And sadly, the the guy walks away. I, I really want to know what it would have been like if the guy just said, you know what, I can't do it. I can't sell all I have. It, it's too important to me. Help me, Jesus. You know, I, I realize you are a good teacher. What do I do from here? What, you know, what do I do? What can I do? And instead, he walks away. And a lot of times people will come to the Bible. They'll come to Jesus. They come to God with something that they want. They, they want to hear a certain thing. And then when they don't get it, they just, okay, well, I'm just going to go somewhere else and ask somebody else. I'm gonna I'm gonna go a different direction and just kind of hear what I want to hear. Now the next thing we're, um, that I'm gonna jump into as I'm sharing this this kind of journey on why I believe what I believe. The next big topic is why do I believe the Bible to be the Word of God? So here's our closing verse. It's Matthew four three through four. This is when Jesus is being tempted by Satan, and it says this. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What I want to draw your attention to is the phrase, It is written. Jesus quotes a Bible verse in defense of Satan's temptation, but this phrase, It is written, implies that the Bible 
has some sort of authority. It, it is the final word. Jesus can say, it is written, and that, that has authority behind it. And so over the next few weeks, I'd like to share my reasons for believing the Bible to be the Word of God. Now, as a little tag at the end, if you are enjoying this podcast, would you consider leaving a five-star review and a positive comment on the podcast app that you use? You know, these, these good reviews and comments help grow this podcast so others find it when they're searching in the you know, Christianity category. So I, I thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something new and come back next Tuesday for another episode.